So um, <coughs> there's a, a beautiful teaching from Ananda Mahima, which I like to, um, well, I would have liked to have begun the talk with it, but I actually forgot to bring <laughs> the quote. <laughs> so I've been sitting here trying to remember it. Um, but I'll do my best. Ananda Mahima, um, for those who uh, aren't aware of her, she her picture is up there in the upper shrine. She's um, one of the great realized beings of contemporary times. Um, she uh, she manifested more or less um, within her birth, within her form as a Bengali uh, woman. Um, pretty much already awakened, it seemed. And she lived, she seemed to live in a very ecstatic, blissful state most of her life and attracted to herself um, millions of devotees and still has millions of devotees. Um, I remem- remember once uh, Ram Das talked about her meeting her at her ashram one night after she'd given darshan and she was walking across the courtyard and after everyone had gone and he just bumped into her he was with a friend and they went up to her and they had the feeling of meeting the, the, the experience he said was like meeting a, a wild deer so although she was very human and incarnated as a human she had a sense of otherworldliness or wildness or not quite um, as we are. There's also a story of uh, when she was very young, she sat down to meditate, and unlike us cultivating samadhi, she went <laughs> she went into samadhi and didn't move for five days. And then, you know, when they finally managed to sort of help her out, she talked about not really knowing the difference between fire and water, and that they had to protect her body. Um, because she was, uh, you know, she was in just, when they asked what the experience was, she just said it's indescribable. It's beyond all description, um, all words. So just a sort of the kind of phenomenal being, really. And one of the the things that she talked about is that our suffering that we have, we suffer as human beings because we experience the world as separate from us. You know, this is one of the, the fundamental um, core uh, reasons for our suffering is our, our sense of separation. We suffer because we feel separate. And this, according to, to her reflection or her realization, this is an erroneous understanding. This is a false understanding. We don't understand our true nature. We don't understand the world as ourselves. So she talked about either burning away the sense of attachment through tapas, through practice of non-attachment, through letting go, which essentially is the, the wisdom path that we've been practicing, um, to keep focusing on letting go, or to melt the sense of separation through devotion. You're really entering deeply into the heart, the devotional heart. So in some ways this is a, this is a really um, poetic perhaps and very apt way of talking about uh, these different approaches to practice. 
the approach particularly of the, the very essential Buddhist approach we've been exploring through the Theravada is very much a, a lot about this letting go, the third noble truth. It, you know, Jin Chao would say it burns, let it go. <laughs> And then fear, realizing all the peace that can come from that. But then in the, this um, pure land that we've been beginning to open the door to, connected with, uh, um, through the doorway of, of holding the name of Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, and contemplating more in depth the meaning of what Kuan Yin, what Avalokiteshvara truly is, is really the way of the devotion, the way of prayer, the way of melting, uh, the sense of separation. It's the way, in some ways, of faith or devotion. Uh, in some ways, Kuan Yin, we heard the reading this morning that Kuan Yin isn't Asian or Western, isn't male or female, isn't here or there or in some particular form, although we have a representation on the shrine of Kuan Yin in her royal pose holding wish-fulfilling pearl. There's other representations of Kuan Yin. But in, in many ways, these representations are just like uh, an icon. And when we, we look at, in the traditional, say, in the Russian Eastern Church, they have the tradition of the icon, that you gaze at the icon as an entry or a doorway into the qualities that the icon represents. So the Kuan Yin is really this this uh, icon of the heart. And as we practice, as we sound the name, as we go beyond the, the form of the name, and 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 allow it to take us back into the depth of listening, which is the true or the deep Kuan Yin, then it, it is a, a doorway into this into this deeper heart. This deeper heart where we, as Ananda Mahima said, where we get to really begin to perhaps even have a glimpse of ourself, not so much the shell of the self, the personality self, the persona, but the deeper, truer reality of who we are. So as we sometimes, this way of dissolving the sense of separation, entering more deeply into our nature, we begin to uh, perhaps uh, can really um, you know this deepest heart really isn't separate it is actually we live we are um, deeply intimate with all things with all beings not as a personality not as the bridge personality between the sense of self and the world out there but in truth the true heart is deeply intimate. Mm. Yeah, so the, this uh, this heart, as we know ourselves, we can touch or taste the heart that's both deeply empty and formless. We've been exploring that, touching into that, recognizing that fundamental nature, the aware, spacious, unmoving presence but also touching into the forms. The Kuan Yin is both the formless and the form. 
the formless, that which is listening, but also that which is listening to all the forms, all the appearances, all the manifestation, but listening in a particular way. Not listening through the mind which creates distinction, which creates self and other, which designates out there and in here, but listens from the the heart, the Avadakiteshvara is the one that regards and looks deeply into the nature and listens deeply into the essence. In this listening, in this regarding, in this, in a way, opening and allowing for the intimacy of all things, there's the recognition that all of the forms within this life have a sacredness to them. Often the sacred is uh, given uh, the attribute of the, the formless or the transcendent or the heaven somewhere else and not within this very form. So as we hold the name of Kuan Yin, as we deepen into the, go through the icon of the name, into the heart, uh, we, be- we begin to open beyond our sense of separation from the forms that we're looking at, thinking about, hearing, tasting, touching, to really feeling a resonance, and feeling infused within the, all of the forms, this life, from the worms in the gardens to the great crashing thunder that rolls across the skies here, to our bodies, to our thoughts, to the sense of ourselves, the sense of others, all these myriad of different forms express life, from the most beautiful and refined to the most despicable. It's all part of this one heart. It's all holy. So this cultivation of the Bodhisattva, this resonance with Kuan Yin, this deepening into the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva rescues living beings, not because the Bodhisattva considers living beings as existing out there somewhere, that they are helping from a sense of pity, but because the Bodhisattva fundamentally recognizes that there's no separation. There's a a resonance. There's a deep resonance, and so the Bodhisattva can feel, is touched, feels this depth of compassion, depth of poignancy even, within life. As this, um, this morning we heard again in the reading from the Shurangama Sutra on the 25 methods of enlightenment of the Bodhisattvas who um, the Buddha asked to appear before him so that he could uh, teach Ananda the most expedient method for his awakening. We heard in the the 24th method of great strength bodhisattva this beautiful image of the awakened one or the Buddha or Kuan Yin being like a, a, a mother or a parent to the one that calls the child. That's, that's a quite a complicated analogy for most of us as Westerners, <laughs> the parent to the child. But there, you know, in essence, there's a, a real purity in that. You know, essentially, there's a real sense of of uh, pure connection or love before the complications, maybe before the karma. 
This is a, the kind of the heart that is suggested is is entered into. It's our natural heart. It just gets obstructed. This is the kind of depth of compassion that's that's uh, uh, encouraged. That we're encouraged into to keep delving into, to keep unpeeling into. to keep being training our heart into. There's a very nice teaching called the verses, eight verses of the training of the mind from a Tibetan teacher, Geshe Langri Tangpa, from the Galupa school. From over, this was written, this text, over a thousand years ago. beings hanging out in caves and things, thinking about this stuff. <laughs> and this is a, a ways, this, this, uh, these texts, these, these verses are about the Bodhisattva heart. They're suggestions for ways of training the heart to overcome the essential sense of uh, the self that feels, the, the personal self that feels that it's doing it all and controlling it all and... Uh, so it's, it's the training of the heart to keep the heart supple, soft, humble, receptive, able to receive this impulse, if you like, of the divine or the impulse of compassion. It's not easy for us as human beings because in the, in the last feta of the, uh, that what obstructs awakening, one of the last fetters is called the sense of self-conceit quite subtle sense of self. In the, in the Christian tradition they talk about uh, pride. It's uh, not, not to um, say that one shouldn't have a sense of healthy sense of self or well-being or pleasure in what we accomplish, but there is something in the psyche, that in the spiritual training that that, that has to, in a way, or in the, in the personality, that has to, not to put oneself down, not the sort of Uriah Heap humble, but it's the, it's the softening, it's the humility, it's the keep. This is why the bowing is very helpful as a practice. This verse, give me the will to accomplish the supreme goal that surpasses even the wish granting jewel that I may constantly cherish all living beings. This is the first bodhisattva impulse to, to, we don't always feel that. (laughs) We often feel completely the opposite sometimes, particularly if we've been hurt. But it's, this is why it's considered a training to cherish to keep working at this, as Kirisar was saying this morning, it's rooted in the Metta Sutta, as a parent would cherish their child. This is the kind of training. Whenever I associate with others, may I view myself as the lowest of them all. And with a perfect intention, may I cherish others as supreme. Now this might sort of 
jar a little bit with maybe some of our psychological training about you know not putting ourselves down and developing self-esteem, which which is a very real issue for many of us. <laughs> but I don't think it's really meant in that vein, or we don't have to mean it of putting oneself down. But it's again, it's this sense of to keep staying with something until we can really hear not only our own perspective, our own superior views, <laughs> which are right. <laughs> you know, I remember once when um, the very first nun of Ajahn Chah was an American woman um, who was practiced with him for as a nun for five years. Um, but at a certain point she became um, converted into a very... Um, extreme form of um, fundamentalist Christianity. And at the same moment that she converted, um, our monastic teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, brought a party of 12 British aspirants to the monastery to meet this great master, Ajahn Chah. This was in the late, uh, early, eight, 1981, actually. It was in 1981. And so he was all, you know, they were all very excited about going out to Thailand. But the very first person they met was this nun who promptly tried to convert them all to, um, to Christianity. Not only that wouldn't stop, kept going on and, and saying how Buddhism was evil and Ajahn Chah was evil and you know it was, it was, uh, <coughs> everything was uh, bad at the monastery and so on and so on and on and on and on and Ajahn Sumedha got really really upset about this because you know he wanted a perfect monastery to take his students to and so he went to Ajahn Chah to complain about this person and, you know, he sat there kind of complaining and going on and on and basically wanted Ajahn Chah to just kick her out. So Ajahn Chah sat there listening, listening, listening. And then in the end, when Ajahn Smeda finally ran out of steam, he said, well, maybe she's right. <laughs> maybe someone else is right. Maybe we can't hear it yet, you know. Maybe it might take us a long time to hear it. But this is the intention to keep listening to beyond our reaction, beyond our views. Examining my mental continuum throughout all of my actions, as soon as kilesa arises, self-cherishing develops, whereby I or others would act inappropriately, may I firmly face it and avert it. This is the virya or the energy of the bodhisattva. May I always work to avert harm for self and other through this sense of trying to cherish this precious life in whatever form, whatever way it appears. Whenever I see unfortunate beings oppressed by violent suffering, may I cherish them as if I had found a rare and precious treasure. This is a very beautiful sentiment to, uh, to not recoil as we would naturally do from those that are oppressed, those that are more unfortunate. Even when I have helped someone and of whom I have had great hopes, nevertheless, when they harm me or if they harm me intentionally, may I see them as a supreme teacher. That's a tough one. <laughs> but this, this realizing in a way to, to contemplate in the responsive nature of the world and the universe that we are going to receive teachings in all manner of ways. And some of the ways we're going to receive teachings are not going to be uh, through easy experiences. To consider that even someone, I remember the great master Maharaji, named Kauri Baba, would say, well, whatever you do with people, whatever's happened, try not to push them out of your heart. Try and keep 
the heart open. So if this is a this is what you might call a more fierce practice sometimes. When others, out of jealousy or anger, harm me or insult me, may I take defeat upon myself and offer them the victory. Very hard for us as human beings. Again, this is pride, the pride that we have. We want to have the victory. We want to crush the other. Uh, we want to prove ourselves right. Uh, which leads to wars and leads to these conflicts. But in a moment of letting go, in a moment of humility, in a moment of giving over the victory, the whole heart can soften again. The whole picture changes. In short, may I directly and indirectly offer help and happiness to all my mothers. This is a very Mahayana, Tibetan, particularly contemplation. All beings have been our mothers. All beings are as our mothers and secretly take upon myself their harm and their suffering. Through all the above practices, together with a mind undefiled by stains of conceptions of the eight worldly winds or reactions to the eight worldly winds, may I see all phenomena as illusory. May I and all living beings be released from all suffering from samsara. Training the heart training the heart with what life brings to us in this um, holding of the holy name, this icon, this way of keep returning to listen into this very heart that is reactive, that feels, that is sensitive, that is both formless and form, is uh, the part of the practice of this pure land practice or part of this holding of the name of Kuan Yin as we recited in the ceremony the other day, is to understand that um, the way and the response are intertwined inconceivably. That there is, that this universe is fundamentally intelligent. That there is a response. That it's responsive. That this prayerful practice evokes response. It might not be the response we want, but what it's inviting us into is that the responses we get through our relationships, through our family, through whatever the world is, through whatever is brought to us, has a perfection. In other words, as uh, I actually don't remember who said it, some great being. <laughs> there are no mistakes. <laughs> there is no mistake. So often we feel oh, it shouldn't be like this, something wrong. And again, Ajahn Chah's it shouldn't be like this it wouldn't be like this it is as it is so you know this this is a this is a prayerful practice because it's inviting the heart to deeply deeply work massage in a way into a deeper level of acceptance the dark and the light the wholesome and the unwholesome the love and the hate the friend and the enemy all the different dualities, all the different shades of light and dark and happiness and suffering that appear to us. But this this practice gives strength. Is this holding the holy name, we're holding the name of Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva, there are many holy names one can hold that really represent the same thing. This holding the name is is to help deepen a, a sense of faith. 
a sense of prayerfulness, a sense of listening. Keep listening beyond our reactions, our views. I remember once when uh, Kitty Sara and I just thinking about this prayer, it's, you know, so often there's a sort of a, a wounding around prayer because of how it's been taught. But it is a very natural part of our makeup. It's, uh, it's like the conversation, it's the relationship of the mystery with the self. I remember once Kitty Sar and I were we we it was our early days here at the Hermitage and we'd been really struggling. I mean we're always struggling about something or other. <laughs> and we decided we'd go to a movie and take a break and we were driving along this long way from here to Peter Maritzburg, two hours we'll drive you know it, many of you know it so well. And we started off in a very sunny afternoon, but within an hour we were in weather like this, mist and storm and rain, and we couldn't see anything at all in front of us, and we were trying to get to the movie. And This was before we understood that this isn't a very bright thing to do, to just drive to town. It's not quite like driving to the mall in America. (laughs) It's a bit different. And so we were driving, and we got stuck behind this really long trucking uh, uh, logging truck, and it was just going it was so slow it was going on and on and on it was really thick mist and at a certain point Kitty Sara pulled out we had this little blue Volvo uh, not Volvo VW he pulled out and we looked and said yeah okay let's do it and he put his foot down and he's like hurtling along taking this this big truck and suddenly out of the mist these headlights come like I swear a foot in front of us a few feet and I just I just missed curtains it's finished, you know, we're finished. And my whole body just went to jelly. And Kitty Sara just turned around to me and said, Pray! <laughs> it was a perfect thing to say. It was really perfect because it immediately just put my mind, it was the only place it could really go, which was like trust. Fortunately, he was driving. If I was driving, I'd probably slammed it on the brakes and it would have been curtains, but he slammed on the accelerator. And we just kind of, you know... And it kind of felt like a miracle. We were just, we were carried on driving. Like, wow, that was like, wow, wow, you know. And the the strange thing was, about half an hour later, as we were slowing down to come off the freeway, this car came hurtling off the freeway, and it didn't have any brakes. It just smashed into the side of us. It wasn't a bad smash, but it, you know, it shook us up when we got out. And it was like, you know, and he was like all over the place, and we were all over the place, but we were all all right. But what was so strange is it felt like we should have been taken out, but there was still, we weren't, but there was still some karmic momentum around it, somehow. And this is one of the responses that they talk about with the practice of Kuan Yin, is that it lessens, you know, this prayerful practice helps lessen disaster, but if there's something meant to happen, and it's about to happen, it helps lessen the intensity of it. So I don't know if that happened that night, but it was this, this prayerfulness, this crying out, this, this part of the human self, not the deeper being that we are, but the, the sense of self that struggles, that, that can't do it all on its own. So it's in a way it's a humble thing saying, I need help. 
I'm open to being helped. And there are moments in life when that's a very beautiful gesture to make into the mystery. It's not, you know, it's not like a sort of shopping list to God or something, <laughs> which is how it's often. But it's a, it's a, it's a very deep, profound opening into the into something we really don't understand, which is this profound, mysterious universe and how it really works. It's somehow softening and opening into that. I, how can we, as a sense of self, understand this universe? That it's a, a trusting, a prayerfulness. And then in that listening, it's being awake and aware and present enough to hear the response. This is how Anandamaye talks about this process. And slightly adjust her use of the term the divine, <coughs> which she calls himself. I'm going to just call it the transcendent, the gender, the language. <coughs> Essentially, there is only one inner call. But the different religions have devised different methods to make people aware of it. Once a person awakens to it, there is no more need to cry out again and again. Truly speaking, it is not you who calls the transcendent, but the transcendent who calls you. Just as in the hushed silence of night, the sound of distant temple bells and conches can be clearly heard, even so when through intense and undivided devotion to the transcendent, the hunger of the senses are stilled. The transcendent call will then find response from within your inmost depths and resonate through your whole being. Then, and only then, will true prayer spontaneously flow from your heart. This divine call is bound to come to everyone, for Shiva, the eternal spirit, has resolved himself into jivas, sentient beings, and every creature has to become reconverted back again into the eternal spirit, just as water freezes into ice and ice melts into water. So this play of transformation of, it, of eternal spirit into sentient beings, sentient beings into eternal spirit, goes on and on through eternity. So working with these forms, these languages, we've inherited from different traditions that are really just pointing back to this one heart to our own inner heart our own inner awareness our own inner listening our own inner Kuan Yin paying homage to the one who listens to the sounds of the world at ease <laughs>